and welcome to this edition of IIEA Insights with me, Daryl Bryan. With our two guests today, we will talk about conflicts raging in Eastern Europe, at the far end of the Mediterranean, and a few others, time permitting. But we'll begin with an attempt to look at the bigger picture on war and peace, specifically whether the period since the Second World War ended, uh, that period when interstate conflict was low by historical standards, we'll ask whether or not that period is coming to an end with the uptick in conflicts in recent times. Uh, to discuss these issues, we are joined by Barry Robinson, a now retired Irish diplomat who, whose role in the Department of Foreign Affairs included political director and the head of Ireland's office to NATO, and by Domitia Sagramosa, senior lecturer in conflict and security at King's College London, and a specialist in Russia and the post-Soviet space. Thanks, thank you both for joining us today. So is the world becoming more violent? Are our states more willing to go to war to achieve their ends? And let me just put a little bit of context around that. There were a lot of theories put forward explaining why the world had become a little bit more pacific after the Second World War. Societies were more democratic, educated populations didn't want to be cannon fodder and go to war. The costs of occupying other territories rose as insurgents could use small arms and explosives to take on much bigger and more powerful uh, militaries. So a whole range of, of reasons that suggest that there are good reasons to say that, that interstate conflict in particular uh, is no longer uh, as beneficial as it, as it once possibly was. Interested to get your, your thoughts on that. Uh, Domitia, we might start with you. Um, well, I think that unfortunately, sort of war has been really a, an element of of human societies, and and uh, it has been there, you know, since uh, sort of almost the beginning of mankind. And of course, we have witnessed periods where there's been uh, less intensity of conflict, but I think that um, there's been uh, sort of an uh, I think maybe a, a not completely correct analysis of thinking, for example, that after the end of the Second World War, there wasn't really uh, a lot of violence because violence really spread very much uh, to uh, areas of what at the time was called the, the third world. Of course, we have the war, uh, which was very violent and brutal in Vietnam, the Russian invasion of Afghanistan and a lot of instability uh, domestically in many countries of the third world. Uh, when the when the the sort of the Cold War uh, was brought to an end, uh, we had this period where we felt that uh, somehow war was going to uh, not be so intense as in the past. But we we see we saw a lot of violence in countries of Africa, uh, in Afghanistan, in Colombia. Uh, the fall of Yugoslavia was extremely violent, uh, and and of course then 9/11 uh, shattered this um, you know this sense of. Of sort of of well-being and of of strong uh, sort of um, positive development, uh, and and uh, and this also um, um, was made worse, of course, uh, the sense of of well-being uh, with uh, the invasion of um, of Ukraine by Russia and the instability that now we find in uh, in the Middle East. But I think that there were a, a variety of factors at the time that played in favor of, of more stability in sort of the industrialized, industrialized world. And that was, of course, uh, the present existence of nuclear weapons, which made exchanges of nuclear, uh, you know, nuclear weapons uh, very, very dangerous. 
uh, also the fact of the, the, the what were the legacies of the of the Second World War, which had been so brutal, resulted in much tighter cooperation in Europe. And in a way, the, the sort of the Cold War created a sort of, a, in a way, a balance of, of power or of terror between the Soviet bloc and, and the Western bloc. And I think decolonization led to a certain level of violence, but not a change of borders, because uh, most of the countries uh, that inherited um, sort of that were the inheritors of the new uh, sort of independent states, they, they respected very much the borders of the colonial times. And there was a bit of, in a way, a sort of a predominance of this Pax Americana, which became sort of hegemonic after the, the fall of the Berlin Wall. But, but I think, why, why do we see, if I might say, sort of an increase of, of very significant violence of a large scale in Europe and in the Middle East and potentially in Asia as well around Taiwan? And I think that one of the elements is, of course, um, I would argue the fact of American uh, disengagement, especially after the so-called 9-11 wars. I mean, I think the United States uh, in, since the late 2000s and the 2010s has been in a process where it was clear it didn't really want to become engaged with boots on the ground. And that um, uh, sort of left space for others to sort of uh, act uh, more freely and more, rad more sort of recklessly. Uh, and I think the US was no longer willing to be sort of the, the world policeman. and. Um, and, and and so there were reactions also to this sort of what at the time was called American hyperpower because of the excesses of the wars in Iraq and, and elsewhere. Uh, I would also argue that there was a perception of weakness of the West, which in a way was sort of exploited, I think, um, uh, especially after the withdrawal of the US from Afghanistan. I think the Russians perceived uh, the West and Europe also very much as sort of declining powers. Uh, and and Russia and maybe the East and China and Asia sort of being more more sort of on, on the rise, so they thought this was a good opportunity to to advance. Uh, I think the same could be said about Azerbaijan vis-a-vis -vis Russia. Now Azerbaijan takes an opportunity because it sees that Russia is much more weakened, and I think that paradoxically the Israelis, you know, felt the Palestinians and the Hamas had been significantly weakened, and then they felt they could be more assertive in their behavior in the West Bank, for example. So I think that there was this combination of factors and also a sort of the rise of countries such as China, which uh, have a tendency now to be much more revisionist. And with Russia, they, they are in a way forming this sort of axis of revisionism. And I might go, go, go back to that in later questions, uh, you know, trying to, to sort of challenge American and Western hegemony. and and sort of change a bit the rules of the game. But I'm going to stop now because I think I talked for too long. Thank you. No, that was that was, that was good. If, if, if a little de depressing, I suppose, that, I, you know, your, your, your points are, are, are really excellent. Um, um, Barry, would you, we're, we're not entering a period of perpetual peace by any means, but would you have some um, thoughts on whether this current period may be, a flare-up, a coincidence of a series of factors, or, or, or as Domitia says, it could be more linked to significant changes going on in the world, weakness in, in, in the West, etc., and that we're we're actually heading into a period of, of more conflict. Yeah, uh, thanks, Dan. Um, I would say I, I broadly share uh, the analysis that. Domatilla has outlined. I suppose if you look at it, I would see um, a shift um, in in terms of the nature and the type of conflicts. And I, 
I also think that Domitil has touched on this. Um, conflicts between states, I think, have reduced probably since the 70s and 80s. Actually, I was looking back this, surprised at how many interstate conflicts you had around the world in the, 70, in the 70s and 80s, but they were quite numerous. I think what has happened more in the meantime is that intrastate conflicts or civil war have been on the increase. And these can be either in relation to competition for control of, of the country or breakaway or independence movements. And then, and these have, these have local roots, even though in some cases, third countries may become involved on one side or on the other. A relatively new phenomenon over the last 30 years has been the emergence of violent ideological um, sort of actors who are non-state actors. We're talking here about Al-Qaeda, Islamic State, uh, Boko Haram, sort of, etc. I see three broad eras. One is the the post is the Cold War era, and, and Domitil has covered that. The um, the mutual deterrence of the blocs in Europe. Still, some competition for influence between the ideologically different Euro-Atlantic and Soviet systems in conflicts elsewhere in Asia, Middle East, Latin America, and Africa. And then you go to the second era, which is the post Cold War era. And I trace this from the late 80s to about 2013. You have the fall of the Berlin Wall. You have the changes in Central and Eastern Europe, the enlargement of the Euro European Union and NATO, the flanking moves to engage Russia in European structures, partnership, uh, partnership for peace, the NATO-Russia Council, the EU-Russia Partnership and Cooperation Agreement on political and trading matters. Um, and then beyond Europe, you had a move towards, um, also towards elective democratic systems. Latin America, for example, in the middle to late 80s, I think Argentina, Brazil, and Chile all moved from military dictatorship to uh, open elected, uh, elected systems. In Africa, the, the end, end of apartheid and some democratization of the countries. And the Middle East, the launch of the Middle East uh, Middle East peace process with the Oslo Accords. Now, not all the developments were positive, positive the breakup, uh, the violent breakup of the former Yugoslavia, the genocide in Rwanda. But what you did find at the after the end of the Cold War was a more cooperative approach between the major powers in managing uh, international peace and security issues. Um, up to the end of the 1980s, I think there were only 13 UN peacekeeping operations launched. In the next two decades, I've counted 55, 37 of which were launched in the 1990s. And this doesn't include UN mandated operations such as you had in, uh, in Kuwait, in Bosnia-Herzegovina and that. Now, by, by no means all these missions were crowned with success. There many of them ended disastrously, but it does show a lever and a measure of cooperation between the, the large powers in managing international peace and security. And what's happened in the last 10 years is a gradual erosion and a fraying of that. I see a number of factors, uh, a few of them have already been mentioned by Domitilla. First of all, you had the, with Russia, the breach of international norms, beginning with the annexation of Crimea and culminating in the full-scale invasion of Ukraine uh, last year. 
in the US, you had not just the sort of retreat from Pax Americana, but you actually had a breakdown of the broad bipartisan consensus on core tenets of US foreign policy, which had endured for, you know, for most of the uh, for most of the period since the 1940s. You had, for example, Trump refusing to reaffirm the Article 5 commitment in explicit terms. You had the retreat from a leadership role in the multilateral uh, system, leaving a vacuum which China, amongst others, sought to fill, albeit uh, with a different approach. Withdrawal from international agreements like the nuclear agreement with Iran, withdrawal from the Human Rights Council, and a transactional approach which, for example, sought to condition continued military assistance to Ukraine on the launch of an investigation into the family member of uh, a domestic political rival. A fundamental change in the US approach uh, to the is Israel-Palestine issue. Now, while Biden has restored the status quo ante on some of these issues, and notably in relation to Europe and Ukraine, it, it, this hasn't applied to all. For example, the Middle East, there hasn't been a full reversal of policy. And the contested internal nature of US foreign policy means that another reversal may be but a presidential election away. And Biden at the moment is trailing in the polls by about 10 points. So the uncertainty about the constancy of US policy weakens its um, credibility as a predictable ally and a reliable partner. Allies, adversaries can stall and run the clock down on an administration's term in the realistic hope that there may be a change of policy to their advantage. And allies and, uh, allies and partners have the opposite fear. And this leads to a loss of power and influence. And then compounding that, of course, is the chaos you have in the House of Representatives over the election of a speaker, over the agreement of budgets. And this impacts, obviously, on external, external assistance as well. And then finally, as Domitilla said with China, China has sought to fill some of this vacuum and void, but and taking a leadership role in the multilateral order, but reshaping it in accordance with, or trying to reshape it in accordance with Chinese preferences and characteristics. Um, so I think that's in, in broad terms how I would see it and why we've seen this fragmentation of discipline in the last 10 years and um, the erosion of the eating away at the um, at the international multilateral uh, multilateral rules-based order. Three points, uh, Dorothea, and the, the, the revisionist powers, as you call them, China, Russia, Iran. To what extent do you see them coordinating with each other to actively reshape that order? And then specifically, given your expertise in Russia, you made an interesting point when we spoke the other day about Russia's uh, interventions, military security interventions in, in Africa, uh, I think a point might be worth uh, worth, worth uh, our, our viewers uh, and listeners' attention. Well, I think that uh, sort of Russia is at the center of this um, sort of triangle in a way because it has developed now uh, a very close strategic partnership with China and uh, and the Chinese. I think are very intent on making sure that uh, the regime of Putin doesn't. Uh, fail entirely in, in Ukraine, that it is not uh, sort of defeated and humiliated by the United States. So it's providing a, a sort of an economic, uh, financial in a way, and also potentially technological lifeline and diplomatic lifeline to Russia. 
the relation is quite complex because also uh, the Chinese have uh, been very disappointed with the way in which Russia has carried out uh, this uh, military operation, the invasion of Ukraine, and uh, there is a perception also of some kind of deceit. And there are worries in China as well that um, if there is an agreement over the uh, so the war in Ukraine, that then uh, sort of Russia becomes uh, more closely aligned to the West, and uh, and as a result of that, China becomes more marginalized and and sort of encircled, which is. A big concern for China because it's uh, sort of really worried, or you know, the relations with the United States are sort of the, the top priority there. But it, you know, it really helps the Chinese to have this sort of access with Russia to sort of create a joint uh, position, two great powers, uh, you know, standing challenging uh, the sort of American leadership. And this is not something new. Began in the early 2000s when they signed this uh, 2001, the Treaty of Friendship and Cooperation. And the, the worries were particularly strong around events in Central Asia uh, in the early 2000s when uh, there were efforts uh, to uh, sort of reverse or ideally, you know, the, the famous of regime changes and uh, the sort of colored revolutions which had reached as far as uh, Kyrgyzstan in Central Asia, potentially Uzbekistan. So already we find a strong cooperation between these two powers around the Shanghai Cooperation Organization to uh, push for a Russian, excuse me, for, for an American withdrawal of, uh, of its military forces in Central Asia. So this is not something new, it's just what I want to highlight. At the same time, um, Russia has developed much closer ties with Iran, and this also is not recent. It goes back to the 90s when the Russians were providing technological support for the Iranians to develop uh, their sort of civilian uh, nuclear energy project, which then uh, turned into much more sort of military. But uh, also uh, at the time of the end of the USSR, the, the, the Russians had few uh, markets where they could sell their armaments and Iran and others became relevant in that respect. With Iran in particular was nuclear energy, but I think that Russia was trying to sort of sell wherever it could without thinking very much strategically. Because there were issues of confrontation as when as well with Iran uh, around energy in the Caspian, um, uh, most famously in 2001, there was almost a confrontation around Azerbaijan. So, but more recently, uh, it has really helped the the Russians to have the China, the Iranian support, especially as we know around drones and missiles, and and this has been extremely helpful. And uh, and I think that at the same time. The Iranians have their own agenda in the Middle East, and Russia is in a way, I think, caught sometimes off guard, because um, I think that the, the Russians were quite happy with the fact that they were one of the few sort of so-called great powers. Well, of course, China was not highly involved, but it was becoming increasingly involved in the Middle East. But the Russians could have good relations both with Israel and with uh, Hamas and the Palestinians. And now they've been sort of uh, a bit forced to, in a way, they 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 decided to take sort of the the line of of the Palestinians, but to the detriment of relations with Israel, which they put in in particular had managed quite successfully to the point that uh, the Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu had been very hesitant to provide effective um, military support to Ukraine, especially in terms of air defense. So I think that, um, you know, they, each of these countries has, has their own agendas. The, the Russians have supported 
uh, sort of the claims of uh, China and Taiwan. They, they help each other, they support each other on their sort of regional dimensions, but they each have their own sort of interests and objectives. Uh, and I think one needs to be a bit careful because if we look more specifically, if I may talk, for example, about the Southern Caucasus, where there is a, a lot of instability around Azerbaijan, Iran and Russia, in a way, are not necessarily fully aligned because Russia has now relied much more on uh, the partnership with Azerbaijan, allowing it to move further into Karabakh to the humiliation in a way of Russian peacekeepers peace who were keeping the peace or protecting theoretically the Armenian minorities in, in Azerbaijan. And the Iranians are very upset in a way about Azerbaijani advances because they worry that that might affect them as well. And they, they had the main transport routes by Iran towards Nakhichevan, the Azeri enclave. So this is what regards this sort of triangle. In terms of Africa, if I have a few moments and if I may, I think what is interesting about Russia is that, uh, and, and sort of there's a lot of talk about Russia relying on the Wagner group. But as I was mentioning to you um, a few days ago, uh, what is interesting to me is the fact that uh, the operations of the Wagner Group and Russia differ if we, if we, depending on which country we're talking about. And you know, the, the, or the, the efforts of the Wagner Group to uh, create instability in Madagascar were not the same as the ones that uh, you know, uh, Russia utilized to exert more influence in Libya. So I think that each country in Africa needs to be considered a bit independently because the presence of Wagner forces there and Russia, you know, might coincide, but my, you know, in the past they didn't always coincide and the Wagner group was also very much interested in, in, in lucrative um, objectives and on obtaining uh, sort of good contracts and, and, and exploit natural resources. And the, in, in this respect, what is interesting is, for example, in Syria, when a group related to Wagner, the Wagner group was trying to get control over oil fields in the area of the resort, they face a very significant backslash from the United States. And the Putin regime didn't come to their support and to their aid, you know, and a lot of uh, sort of uh, Russian mercenaries of these groups uh, were killed, I, I think around over 100. So the relation is not one of full partnership, but of course now Russia is trying to uh, sort of control uh, the, these uh, in, these organizations much more closely. And so now we see Troshev, the, the, the leader of one of these groups, you know, fully aligning uh, himself with the Ministry of Defense and, and with Russia. And we see again now some of these forces returning to the theater in of war in Ukraine. Quick follow-up question. You mentioned the sort of Russian great power status. Clearly the relationship with China is not one of equals. Uh, does that worry the, the Russians that ultimately China is much more powerful than 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 it is, um, and that you know any pretense to, to this being a relationship with equals really is just that a pretense? Oh, there is great worries. There's always been a lot of worries, especially about the Far East and the you know West, you know Eastern Siberia, the possibility that the Chinese might sort of colonize the area. They are present there. They have penetrated this area and. Uh, and uh, you know they are they are they are engaging in in many kinds of business activities in in these regions and and the Russians have always been worried and they, they are not happy of, of being dependent on, on the Chinese so much they would have much more preferred to be um, sort of um, uh, independent samastayatelny uh, so sort of sovereign in international affairs I mean that has been really the buzzword of Putin since the early two thousands this idea that 
Russia is a, is a great power that can act independently and, and you know, exert its sovereignty in international affairs and be a significant pole. And now it has to rely very much on China. It's sort of this indispensable partner, but, um, but I think that is not something that, uh, that the Russians are, are at all happy about, but they, they sort of uh, are left with, with limited choice. And just um, very quickly, is, do you see any possibility post-Putin that Russia would rejoin the West in a containment uh, effort against China, China's uh, greater, greater power. Is that conceivable in the near future? I don't think so. I don't think that the Russians are going to ever sort of join an alliance to contain China. What they might do is they try to improve if one day Putin is no longer in power and we have a, a government which is less authoritarian and more sort of pragmatic and more sort of technocrat. Uh, potentially even more democratic and that understands that it needs to they many understand this that they need to cooperate much more with the west and many are very dissatisfied with the war in ukraine so i think that there is a possibility of cooperation with the west i think that is very much in a possibility but not at the expense of um, sort of, of uh, undermining relations with China. There's one element where Russia and China have serious sort of disagreements, and that is around Central Asia, especially in the economic sphere. And one of the reasons why uh, the Russians set up the Eurasian Economic Union was to create a market for Russian goods uh, in Central Asia that would be protected uh, from Chinese products, which were starting to penetrate quite actively. But the Chinese are the main investors and the main trading partners of countries in Central Asia. When I talk about Central Asia, I mean the, the stance, former Soviet Central Asia. So I think that there are many areas where there is, uh, you know, there's going to be tension. And uh, the whole uh, One Belt, One Road initiative, um, you know, in a way was sort of bypassing Russia. So we'll see how that goes. I mean, now Putin was at this meeting, so maybe he's going to convince them that, you know, many trade routes should pass via Russia. But, uh, you know, Russia's trade with the West is at the moment very much uh, in a hold. Absolutely. Barry, feel free to pick up on any of the many points uh, Donatilla has made uh, over the past few minutes. But I, I wanted to ask you also, um, specifically from an Irish perspective, and those relations with, with both Russia and China, clearly Ireland is not neutral in, 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 the, um, in, in the Ukraine conflict. In fact, I can hardly remember a time when Irish ministers uh, have been as as forceful in, in taking sides in a conflict as this one, correct me if I'm wrong. And then also relations with China. Earlier this year, the foreign minister, Michal Martin, gave this sort of, what all European or EU member states are doing now, this sort of de-risking language around China, uh, which didn't go down well in Beijing at all, as I'm sure you, you, you noted. Um, but just maybe uh, some some views on how Ireland's relations with those uh, those powers have changed. Yes, I think with Russia, um, like it's worth remembering that at the end of the Cold War, Ireland did actually actively embrace the the opportunity, the political, but also the economic opportunities created by the um, the end of the Cold War, the melting away of the dividing lines in Europe. And um, we invested quite heavily in building up bilateral trade and investment relationships, including, I think, we ran the first, or we operated the first, uh, did anyway, the first duty, duty-free uh, shop at, a, at an airport, airport in Moscow. But we did actually expand our trading considerably. And in 2014, when the sanctions regime began to be introduced, 
while obviously we weren't on the front line and the sanctions didn't affect us as much as the other countries, uh, they did have an impact because we were in 2013, I think, the third highest exporter of fish, uh, food and products into Russia. We had a very substantial trade in other agricultural agricultural products. I think we were doing about six to seven hundred million a year, euros a year in trade in, in sort of in those areas. There was a lot of cooperation developed in other areas. So we actually had invested in trying to capture the opportunity to build a new and more open Europe politically, but also underpinned by, by economic interdependence. However, the breach beginning in 2014, like one thing we are very strongly, very strongly committed to is upholding the rules-based order. And where rules are breached and egregiously breached, this must have consequences. So we strongly supported the sanctions regime at some cost to ourselves, obviously not as much as to others who are more invested. And clearly what happened in Ukraine, what happened in 2022 uh, sort of, um, cost, you know, really represented, I think, the final turning point, at least, or the closing of a particular chapter there. Um, I don't really see, I think at the moment, the um, the political solidarity with, uh, with Ukraine, and that I think is very strong, is very deep-rooted, and I don't see any any prospect of a, a reversal in that, you know, in the foreseeable future, things would have to change very dramatically in Russia and and in Russian behaviour. China as well, um, there's been a, you know, again a huge expansion of economic relations. I don't have the the trade figures now, but it it has been a huge, uh, um, sort of has been a huge envelop, development. Uh, we invested in it a lot. We invested in. Um, in it from the political point of view as well, in, in terms not just not just developing economic relief, but also being prepared to indicate and discuss where we had um, points of difference on the political side. I think with China, it'll be a, a de-risking perhaps, but at the same time, I think there is scope for the relationship to continue and to prosper. But obviously there will perhaps be a more cautious approach in certain areas, particularly those in which th there would be a security impact. If I could just pick up on a point that Matilda made earlier about the, the triangle, so to speak. Um, I agree largely, but I just wonder if you look at, say, Iran, which is quite a, can be quite a disruptive power in its own region, and Russia, which has been engaged in disruptive activities in Africa, I think China takes a more managed approach to the development of relief. They try to expand influence through trade, through investment, the development of economic um, relations. And I think while they want to reshape the way the, world, the international order works, I think they want to do it in a more managed and a more orderly way, uh, from my point of view. So I'm not sure if it's a point that, uh, that she would share, but I do see a difference in the approach. Um, even if perhaps there is some confluence in terms of the end objectives. Pick up, Barry, on your point, um, Ireland's trading relationship with, with China, a lot in, in, in the EU is focused on Germany, which is in absolute terms the biggest exporter to China. But on a per, per capita basis, Ireland's merchandise yeah. exports to China is by a distance the highest in the EU 27. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, the fact that I, I don't think quite gets as much 
attention as uh, as it might, uh, given the risks, uh, particularly around any kind of rupture that involve that involving an invasion of Taiwan, Taiwan would bring about. So we have very significant export exposure to to China. Um, that's uh, I think point worth uh, worth mentioning. So m moving on to to. Um, Yes, and just on that, obviously, the relationship, the economic relationship with China has developed onto a much larger scale than the one that the, than the relationship that we had with Russia pre-sanctions. So okay. obviously, there's a lot more, there's a lot more at stake. But I think also other countries realize that, you know, you have to try and manage the the relationship with China, that there are certain areas which you have to be cautious on. But there isn't, it's not like with Russia, where there's almost a shutdown. Yeah. because of Russian behavior. There is, as I said earlier, there is scope to maintain the relationship with China. There's a need to maintain the relationship with China, but perhaps being more cautious in certain areas. Good. So, uh, Domitia, moving on to, to um, the, the specific, the, the, the biggest, you know, of course, the past 12 days, we've seen uh, extraordinary upheavals in the Middle East, but I think in terms of from a European perspective, the, 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 the greatest security shock we've had was the full-scale invasion of of, uh, of Ukraine by Russia 18 months ago. In, in terms of giving us an insight on into what the objectives Russia had when it invaded and what it looks, what it sees as the best possible outcome for it now, um, how have the, how have those 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 two perspectives changed over time? Well, I think what is interesting is um, you know to compare what Russia intended to do in Ukraine and what I think will it, you know it will probably manage to achieve. And of course, uh, you know uh, we know that Russia was talking about sort of denazifying Ukraine, which meant uh, sort of toppling the government of President Zelensky, overturning uh, the European or Euro-Atlantic vector of Ukraine's foreign policy in favor of a sort of a pro-Russian vector. Uh, secondly, the idea that uh, Ukraine had to be fully demilitarized, uh, it had to remain neutral, it had to renounce NATO membership and not accept any kind of presence of uh, Western NATO forces on its territory, especially, uh, you know, in the, in the Black Sea region. Uh, there was also an ideal objective, I think, or a, or a dream in a way of, of, uh, of Putin to sort of in a way partition Ukraine and share the spoils with neighbors such as uh, potentially Hungary or Romania because of the minorities there, uh, you know, and uh, Russia would keep uh, most of the sort of eastern parts of, of uh, Ukraine uh, to the Dnipro River. And maybe just leave you what is sort of a, a rump Ukraine in, in, the, in the Western part. Uh, what was important for Russia, I think, was to open up this corridor uh, from the Donbass to Crimea through uh, Zaporizhia, Kherson, and, uh, and potentially take also Odessa all the way to Transnistria and Moldova. Uh, so this was really what uh, ideally Russia had in mind. It's For the moment, it, it has managed to retake a, a lot of land all the way to Kherson and, and to keep uh, Crimea. Um, there was also an effort to sort of officially to sort of protect uh, Russian speakers and uh, to, to um, reverse what they called Ukraine as an anti-Russian. So end the process of Ukrainization in terms of language, uh, but not only language, there was an important process of what, uh, what was called decommunization, 
uh, and historical revisionism regarding the Second World War. So, you know, uh, challenging the communist past as a sort of a Soviet uh, imposition on Ukraine. And this was something which was upsetting the Russians uh, very much, especially the historical revisions. Uh, I think that, you know, this was, these were sort of the strict objectives of the military operation, but the overall objectives of Russia in Ukraine more generally, uh, as I said, was to sort of make sure that with Ukraine, Russia could become again a sort of a real great power in Europe in particular, you know, and become one of the sort of uh, poles uh, in, the, in the world and position itself as a global power. Uh, with the Eurasian Economic Union, the Collective Security Treaty Organization, and having Ukraine being part of that re really gave, gave these organizations a much higher and, and more potentially influential uh, sort of remit. Uh, there was also a security imperative, you know, the question about NATO enlargement and concern about uh, Western approaches to Ukraine's borders. There's a lot of discussion about whether this was really one of the objectives. Uh, or it was just a facade. I think that it was one element that was there. It wasn't probably an, a, any more the, the sort of the defining element uh, because I think Russians knew that, uh, you know, Ukraine was not gonna be absorbed into NATO, but still it was a good narrative that could be sold uh, not only domestically, but also globally. And it is something which has, uh, you know, received very strong sort of understanding in, in so-called the global South and also in China, for example. But I think there is also a very strong sort of new imperial um, narrative or, or sort of worldview, uh, this idea that Russia would revive, you know, and develop as a strong state. Uh, you know, imperialism is not seen in a negative light anymore in Russia in many quarters. And Putin's objective was in a way to make a fusion of the of the communist past and the imperial past, um, you know, and, and bring bring sort of the glories of the Soviet and the and the imperial past together. And this is not something new in the Russian tradition of, of, of uh, geopolitical thinking. It was there already uh, when the Soviet Union was set up. Uh, the narrative that Russians and Ukrainians are a single people, they are all share the single sort of historical um, experience, um, similar experiences. They were joined in a single state for many centuries and they are all, all orthodox. Uh, the languages are very similar. And this idea that Ukraine is an artificial country. So Putin saw himself as this part of this historical mission. But I think one point which is very important is that I think that Russia, that Putin wanted to resolve the Ukrainian question. I think he, there was no advancement in the implementation of the so-called means two agreements. And, and as a result of that, uh, there was a lot of frustration also around the question, for example, of access to water and the North Crimean Canal. And, and you know, in Crimea, this was becoming a, a serious problem. There's also discussions about whether you know, successful Ukraine, democratic and prosperous could undermine the Putin regime. I think that is something up to discussion. I mean, whether the, the, the policies have changed, I think that if I have a few moments, I think Russia has been forced in many ways to revise its objectives in very much in response to uh, you know, its difficulties and the military on, on the ground and the military theater. Uh, it, it became clear that it cannot occupy the whole of Ukraine. It occupies a big chunk of it, but it, it has fi it's finding it difficult to advance. Uh, even though there are pushes again in the area of Adivka, around in the Donetsk Oblast uh, and in the areas around Kupiansk, 
in the north uh, northeast, but still, uh, it's it's been really challenging for Russia. So I we're, think we're just almost out of time. Domitila, I just want to refer back to a, an excellent opinion piece you wrote in the Financial Times in August, where you 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 didn't really see incentives for either Russia or Ukraine to seek an end to the conflict. Are are you still? Do you, do you see those incentives having changed over the past three months, or do you still see this this conflict grinding on? Well, I think that um, there is still, I mean, a negotiated outcome which would sort of freeze the situation on the ground and, and you know, force Russia to recognize Ukraine's sort of Euro-Atlantic or European aspirations. I think, uh, I think is 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 a possibility, but not not in the short term. I think that the chances of a negotiated outcome today are quite limited because still there is readiness on both sides to continue fighting. And we haven't reached what we call this hurting stalemate where both sides feel that they're not gonna make much progress by continuing to fight. Uh, you know, there are a lot of losses on both sides, but I think that yet we haven't reached this moment when both sides are ready for uh, for our negotiations. Okay. I, have a, I have a hunch if I may just briefly that if Russia was told that it, you know, that you know, it could recognize its current, um, you know, advances and occupations, that maybe it would be ready to negotiate. But I think that's very unlikely. Okay, Barry, I'm gonna. I, there's a bunch of questions I, I wanted to put to you, so maybe given the limited time, I'll put them all together. In terms of how the conflict has changed Ireland's outlook on security, Louise Richardson's report. Uh, was published earlier this week. I have not read it yet. Maybe you have, and maybe some thoughts uh, on that. Um, clearly, Ireland hasn't joined Sweden and NATO in, in feeling that its security will be enhanced by joining NATO. There's no question, really, that, that that's on, on the agenda. Uh, do you see that changing in any way? And also picking up on a point related to NATO that you you mentioned, mentioned earlier, that you know if the next presidential election in the US leads to a return, of of Donald Trump, and if he does uh, pull out of NATO, how big a shock would that be for Europe? And what do you think would the, the likely um, reaction by Europeans um, to, to that uh, and Ireland's role within all of that? That's a, a lot to cover in the next three or four minutes. Sorry. <laughs> It's a vast menu. I'll try and land land on, on as many points as possible. I think just from Ireland's point of view, yes, I think it has led to a reappraisal. Like traditionally, we've been very focused um, on working to kind of create, support and sustain the international rules-based environment and make it work. Developing cooperation to assist the economic development and uh, development of capacity in third world countries. Um, conflict prevention resolution. Sometimes we draw on our own experience of peace peace process on the island of Ireland. Peacekeeping, we've had continuous presence in peacekeeping operations for 65 years, and that is intended to preserve the space for negotiation on, uh, um, on political solutions. And also arms control and disarmament, where we have played a lead leadership role on, on, on nuclear um, non-proliferation disarmament and also cluster munitions to try and deal with uh, the weapons in a sense uh, that fuel conflict. But I think what has happened now, you know, the center of strategic gravity migrated eastwards and southwards after, after World War II, and we were very much on the periphery of that. 
I think what has happened now is that we realize actually that while we're not in the front line of the conflict, that we are impacted by it and there are risks. And for example, the uh, the the situation in the Irish territorial waters and the and the European and the and the exclusive economic zone, whereby you've had Russian uh, Russian activity, you've got the issue of the protection of the undersea cables, which are critical to Ireland's situation as a digital hub. We've had cyber attacks and critical infrastructure. So I think in the areas of um, maritime security and cyber, these are areas where we see that we have our own national security risks. And these are areas, and it comes out in, in Louise Richardson's report, these are areas on which it, there seems to be a growing consensus that we should do more uh, to try and protect ourselves. And this will involve cooperating with like-minded partners, exchange of information, capability building. We can do that through existing structures in the EU, the PESCO process on the CSDP, and partnership uh, for peace as well. But I don't think, and this comes out again in the report, I don't think there's an appetite to join a military alliance. I don't foresee that. Um, but I think that there will be an increased emphasis on national security, but done in a cooperative way with other partners, short of joining an, uh, joining an alliance. Uh, you asked also about uh, whether the US withdraw f f f might withdraw from NATO. I'm not sure it would necessarily quite happen in that way. I think if the next president is the former one or someone with a similar perspective to it, him, the first casualty would be a military assistance to Ukraine. And I think that obviously will then put a huge burden on the European allies to try in some way to compensate for the deficit. That would create a situation where obviously it would tilt the military balance in favour of Putin, but also would generate anxieties, insecurities and divisions in the European camp as well, which he could, could work on and could play on. Um, but I'm not sure, you know, I like there is quite a strong... To pull the US out of NATO after 75 years, whatever it is, would be in a massive step. And there are, you know, countervailing weights and influences within the defense establishment in the US. But I think there's more appetite for greater burden sharing within the alliance, for reduced US exposure, and certainly on the Republican side of the island, uh, certainly for reducing the military assistance to Ukraine, which could have a decisive impact on the, um, on the battlefield and on the front line. Um, I think one thing Europe may do in response would be to strengthen the West, the, uh, the European pillar of NATO, because that will involve the UK and Turkey and Norway, who are mili militarily capable. I don't necessarily see the EU as being the, the foundation, foundation stone for it, because the UK is no longer part, obviously, of the, of the European Union. Um, I don't know if I've answered the questions that you... I've tried to cover the questions that you've asked. I don't know if I've missed out on anything. No, well, look, we've, we've actually gone over time, which we rarely do, and I think that's reflective of, uh, of how ambitious the conversation today perhaps was. Uh, but thank you both for, for giving uh, giving us your time today. Um, a lot of ground covered, and uh, maybe a cliche to say at the end of events like this that we could have gone on for at least a song again. I think that's certainly true in, the, in this case. Um, but look, uh, I hope... Uh, all of our members enjoy the conversation, learn something from it. And again, thanks, thanks to you both for giving us the time today. Have a good afternoon to everyone uh, here.
Okay, thanks, Stan. And nice to meet you, Damatello. Thank you very much. Nice to meet you. Bye now. Bye bye. Thank you.